Welcome to the Buckhead Church Podcast. At Buckhead Church, we are for Atlanta because we believe that God is for Atlanta. And these days, it's more important than ever to be known by what we're for. And we hope this podcast helps you in your life and faith. We want to help you find greater hope with fewer regrets because we are for you. If it's your first time with us, head over to buckheadchurch.org slash new so we can meet you and send you a free For Atlanta gift on us. If you're not already receiving weekly emails from us, make sure to head to our website, scroll to the bottom, click stay informed and sign up today. The best way to keep up with everything going on is to follow us on social media, subscribe to our YouTube channel and download our free Buckhead Church app. But most importantly, I hope the following episode inspires you to take the next step forward in your faith journey this week. Enjoy. Well, when we, we dreamed up this series, we kind of cheated a little bit. Uh, we stole this title uh, from a previous environment we had. We knew it would evoke uh, some interest and maybe even some reactions. Uh, we actually used to have a short-term marrieds group called Intimate Encounters. And um, uh, people, when they heard about it, uh, which was not a great thing for people to Google online, by the way, but when people heard about it, um, they, they, were, they were like, what kind of church is this? And then there were other people that were like, okay, what kind of church we have here? And so there was all sorts of interest and even awkward inquiries in the beginning and a lot of insider jokes, by the way. I shouldn't tell on our staff like this, but we're real people. And I remember one of our staff meetings uh, years ago when, when we had this environment and I think we all knew it was like a bad name for this, this married environment. And, and uh, we used to introduce ourselves. Our staff was already large enough that we would, we would tell stories. We'd get together, tell stories and pray together uh, on a weekly basis. And so you walk up to a microphone, if you're gonna tell a story, share something that, that felt like a win that you were doing. So I'd walk up, I'd say, hey, I'm Joel. Everybody would say, hi, Joel. It was that kind of meeting. Uh, I'd say, hi, Joel. And, and they would say, and then, I, and then I would say, you know, I'm the lead pastor at Buckhead Church. And, and so there was a guy on this particular week, he walked up to the microphone just like anybody normally would. And he said, hey, I'm Ben. Everybody said, hey, Ben. He said, I work in the Intimate Encounters store. <laughs> Which was really awkward for Andy because he was leading the meeting and he like didn't know how to recover from that. But that moment like killed the environment. We knew we needed to change the environment. Um, and that guy no longer works on staff. So that's an interesting thing as well. Um, but it's interesting what we uh, reflexively associate with the word intimacy. When we, when, we, when we think of the word intimacy, we automatically think sex. Like when, when you see the word or somebody's talking about it, or we even, we even when, when we're in conversation, we don't want to use the word sex because it can be awkward in, in mixed company, you know, we'll say intimacy. And, and we've sort of conflated or equated these two ideas. But most of us know that intimacy doesn't equal sex. I mean, there's lots of people who've experienced sex that's not intimate. Let's be honest. And many people have also experienced intimacy um, that's apart from sex. And so these, these two things are, are, not, are not equivalent, but in our hypersexualized culture um, that's distorted our understanding of true intimacy, we, we've sort of conflated the two, the, these two ideas. And because of that, uh, in part, um, people have been left disillusioned and discouraged and dissatisfied in their relationships. They thought, you know, sex was going to provide or promise something that it, it didn't. And so here's what I want to talk about. And the reason I want to talk about this, because I'll be honest with you, it's not popular and it's not going to be a feel-good topic, especially after today. Um, but here's the thing. Jen and I have watched. We, we've struggled in our own marriage. But we've watched too many couples, friends of ours, good friends of ours, grow apart. And what happened is, is 
close enough in their relationship, what they really desired, this true intimacy that they were really longing for, um, they, they, they weren't experiencing. And close enough was no longer good enough. And after that had gone on long enough, they decided to call it quits and go their separate ways. And some of them um, lost, or, or maybe they never found what they, what they were really longing for, what they were designed for, what they were created to experience. And so here, here's what I want to discuss. I want to discuss what's the nature of true intimacy? What, what is that? We're actually going to define that next week. But, but what is true intimacy? And, and what are the essential components for experiencing or cultivating or creating uh, intimate encounters or intimate relationships, the, the types of relationships that we're really longing for, that we get into romantic relationships for in the first place? But before we do that, here's, here's what we need to do. We need to retrace the steps that led us to this cultural moment. Now, some of you are thinking, are you really going to draw in this series? And the answer is yes, I'm actually going to draw people. I'm gonna draw people, so, so I know that makes some of you nervous, but so I just thought we'd rip the bandaid off. I'm gonna start with people, and this is you, and you are at a particular place in history, in a cultural moment, and I, I don't know why I always draw people with hair because I don't have it, but this is sort of the haircut I used, I, I, w- I wished I had, but um, you're here in this place in history, and you got here and we got here in this cultural moment with this perception and relationship with sexuality, not by accident. Now, most people, when, when, they, when they wanna trace this, they, they go back to the sexual revolution. And, and, and that's important. And we're gonna talk about that in a minute, but, but we have to go back a bit further than that because the reality is, is, is the sexual revolution of the 1960s is not where our perception or our relationship with sexuality in our world began. And so for some of you, you love history. Some of you aren't into this, but you all need to know this. You were shaped by this history and your perception, whether you like it or not, and, and even your beliefs more than you know. We're shaped by this. We have to go back uh, at least as far um, as Sigmund Freud. So in around 1900, we'll call it. It, it was before 19, or late 19, 19th century, uh, early 20th century, uh, Sigmund Freud comes on the scene. And uh, I've talked about Freud before, uh, and you know, he, he made some major contributions. He was one of the first of the psychoanalysts. But, but Freud, when he was talking about sex, he said that the chief psychological problem of man was sexual repression, that, that, that the sexual moral codes that we have are repressive for people. And, and in fact, he even went further. He, he said that, that the, the sort of the denial of sexual desire or of fulfilling those desires was the beginning of all neurosis. That this is how people got messed up in their mind was when they, when they denied themselves the desires. And, and, and as a culture, we latched onto that idea. And, and you can't have real satisfaction and happiness in life if you don't satisfy these desires. But Freud admitted that a sexual free-for-all, like that couldn't coexist with civilization. You just, you couldn't have that because if everybody just went after whatever they desired and there was sort of no structure, you couldn't have civilization. That would be, that would be chaos. And when, when the more you eroded the civilization around that or, or these structures, you'd have chaos. But he said, this, this is a big problem. So then enter uh, a guy named Wilhelm Reich or Wilhelm Reich in the 1930s. And what's interesting about Reich is he agreed uh, with Freud. And he said that, that yes, um, that, that the denial of, of these sexual desires creates sexual repression, but he, he took it further. He, 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 in his book, um, The Sexual Revolution, 
uh, Reich writing in the 1930s, this is important, he's writing in Germany. And, and he, he basically links these sexual moral codes, these, these things that, that govern people's behavior to a connection to the patriarchal family. And the patri- patriarchal family structure was meant to uphold or preserve the authoritarian state, which you can imagine in 1930s Germany, you know, he's writing against this, this oppressive state. And Reich actually makes the statement. He makes, he's the first one that says, no, they're not just repressive, they're actually oppressive, that these sexual moral codes, people need to be free from those things. In fact, Reich said, Reich said this. He said, religiosity that is hostile to sex is the product of an authoritarian society. This is meant to control people. Morality was about controlling people's behavior. And it's oppressive. And it denies the ability for people to be them true, their, their true selves. And his ideology um, was that greater human flourishing would come through sexual liberation. And so we, this is where this idea came from, that the, the sexual, this is a precursor to the sexual revolution, but sexual liberation, we needed to be free from things. And, and so what, what happened was Reich and Freud, their, their thought together was that, that we needed to be dismissed or that the first step in this was a dismissal of moral authority. That as it related to sexuality, that these sexual moral codes, they needed to be got, gotten rid of because they were not only repressive to people, which was not good for them psychologically, but it was oppressive for them in a society where people were trying to control their behaviors and manipulate people. However, this ideology, and this is important, it was just ideas. Even though they became widespread and there were a lot of people that adopted them, they may have never gone mainstream without a second factor, the first factor was the, the willingness or the desire to dismiss these moral codes. The second one was the developments of modern technology. Now, it, you, you may have never thought about this, but in the 1960s, when the sexual revolution began, it didn't begin because there was some really influential person who came out and said, hey, this is the way things ought to be, or somebody was elected in office, or legislation was changed. There was a technological advancement. The world's first distributed birth control pill. Now, this is important. You, you, this, just hang with me for a second. If you're not in history, you need to know this. Your mentality and your thinking has been shaped by this. With the pill, the risks of sex, both financial and social, which were very high before that, were dramatically reduced. In terms of sexual liberation, what this did is it freed us of unwanted pregnancies and it freed particularly young men from being hunted by their girlfriend's father or older brother because they got their, his daughter pregnant. So, so you know, the, the risks in society, both financial and social, the embarrassment, the, the cost, the, the this is gonna affect my future, like those were dramatically reduced. And so this is what happened. Recreational sex without long-term commitment became much safer. In fact, it became so safe, we didn't even think about it anymore. What we started to turn our attention to is the diseases that you could get. And so it was like, okay, well, people are gonna do that and yeah, people should be free to do that. We just need to make sure people aren't passing around diseases because of that. And so that, that was how far things advanced so quickly. And then there's one other thing, completely disconnected from these two things. Um, really important event that happened. Um, and, and some of you some of you know this. this. This happened in January 1st, 1983. Does anybody know what happened? January 1st, 1983? Yeah, Al Gore invented the internet. Did I say something wrong? I think that's true, isn't it? 
Al Gore invented the internet, which this is, this is so, listen, Hugh Hefner, you know who Hugh Hefner is. He popularized the widespread distribution of adult content in magazines. But the dawn of the internet freed us. Sexual liberation. It freed us from the shame of standing in front of a certain magazine rack in a certain store or being caught in the adult film section of the video store or having to go meet up with someone or go to a part of town where we could pay for sex. And the the shame of that was gone when the internet came online. And aided by these two inventions, once intimate encounters became casual encounters. It, it became more simply a way of getting your needs met. And that, that's, how, that's how eventually, and again, this is an oversimplification, but this is essentially how, how, we, we, how, how the, the, the dawn of the, the, the Tinder and the hookup culture became about. It, it was, it's been popularized in films by Ashton Kutcher and, and Justin Timberlake. You, you've probably seen some of those films. But here's, here's what this is important to us today. Look, these two things are these two thinkers. They, the sum of their work created uh, two things and, and these, these technological innovations. The, the, the death or the dismissal of moral authority structures, it, it, uh, especially as it related to uninhibited sexual expression. That what this did is this made our sexual expression more permissible in our society. It changed our thinking to go, no, no, maybe this is okay. Maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe it is my body and I can do whatever I want with it. And, and what happened, these technological advancements, it made it more accessible. So because it was more uh, permissible and more accessible, here's what happened. Eventually, it became natural to fulfill or to chase after our sexual desires. And congratulations, that's how you got here. That's how I got here. That's how we came to this place in history. And I just, I just need you to know this. This is relatively new. Like this is like just over a hundred years old. Like this is, there's, we have 1700 years of history in the West of, of operating in a completely different way. And, and the promise of sexual liberation was that more authentic expression of sexual desires leads to greater levels of happiness. That, that that's, that's what, the, what the promise was. Here's the problem, and some of you know this. By all measures, I, I do my research. You do your own research. You can go look this up. By all measures, happiness levels among both, among both married and single people in the United States have been on decline since. Any guesses? The 1960s. Happiness levels among people in the U.S., married and single, and the greater, the greater decline is among females, which the idea in the beginning was that, that this would create greater happiness, not just among men, but also among females. Now, here's the thing. I know some of you are thinking this. Some of you are really smart people, like most of you. Correlation does not equal causation. But this is a fascinating coincidence, is it not? It's fascinating that today at the height of sexual liberation in the West, in, in our society, Rates of depression and anxiety are even higher. Amazingly, 
the Bible has something to say about this. No, I know, I know, I know. Some of you are like, you're, the Bible, are you kidding me? We're, you're gonna, you're gonna, but, but here's the thing you need to know. Paul, the words we're gonna look at in a second, he's writing to a Greco-Roman society with little, if any, moral sexual regu- regulation. They hadn't been given. I mean, th- this was all, so, so this became a part of our society uh, through the values of Jesus and the writings of Paul and the other New Testament writers. I mean, this didn't exist before. So he's approaching a group of people that are, they're probably maybe even a little further than where we are, but it's where we're headed. And, and I know some of you are going, hey, quick, quick time out, Joel. I mean, did you know that we're adults? Like, this isn't like student ministry. This isn't college ministry. I mean, are you really going to give us a Bible lesson about sex? Here's what's interesting. The same pushback was the pushback that Paul received when these sexual morals or instructions were first given the ones that we freed ourselves when they, they were first introduced. And, and this, is, this is how it went. Paul, Paul's writing to the people in, in, first, in, in Corinthians, in Corinth, and he says, you say, I'm allowed to do anything, which is actually something Paul had told them, that they had freedom in Christ now. They've been free from the condemnation, the guilt of their past, and they're, they're free from that, and now they're free to live for God. And, and he, said, he said, hey, you told us we're free, and so they're like, we're free, and I'm allowed to do anything. And, and there's a little bit of a, I have a right. I'm an adult. It's my body. I can bear my own consequences. I can do whatever I want with it. The Apostle Paul says, yeah, I know you say I, I, I'm allowed to do anything, but, but not everything is good for you. I mean, yeah, you're, you're allowed to do whatever you want with your body, but not everything is good for you. And I wonder, have we, have we stopped for a moment? I, look, I, I know I sound crazy in, in our cultural moment, but have we stopped to ask ourselves, is what we're experiencing good for us? Like, I, not, not like, is it moral? Is God happy with us or not happy with us? Is, is he waiting to like give us consequences? But like, if, if you look across our society, is it good is it good that the average teenage boy carries a device around with him all the time? They have it with him all the time. It's like stuck to their hand with access to view more naked women than the most powerful and promiscuous king of all time at any moment. I mean, is that good? I mean, we might, we might all agree today. We might all go, no, no, that's, that's bad. It's bad for teenage boys. But my, my next question is like, when do you grow out of that? When do you grow out of the harmful effects of that? Actually, you never do it according to neuroscience. We'll get to that in just a second. But, but Paul goes on. He says, okay, like even, I, I told you this, but even though I'm allowed to do anything, and Paul, he's sort of empathizing now. He's like, okay, you, you say you're allowed to do anything. I, yeah, I'm allowed to do anything, but I must not become a slave to anything. Or your translation might literally say, I must not be mastered by anything. Sexual desire, this is Paul's, Paul's uh, his point is, is, it has the potential to master you and enslave you. And the irony is, is that we've been trying to free ourselves or liberate ourselves from something with the potential to enslave us. And nobody talks about that. Nobody warns us about that. I mean, you're an adult. You can, I'll just agree. And Paul said this, you can do whatever you want, but you should know that this thing, this desire inside of you, it can be a tremendous uh, force for good in the world, but it, it can also enslave you. It can master you. 
He goes on, he says, look, you, this, you would say this. You would say food was made for the stomach and the stomach for food, which is basically like saying, you know, food like sexual desires and appetite that must be satisfied. Um, and to, to deprive it is bad, and, which, which is funny because that's what Freud said. Like to deprive yourself of this is bad. So if you're not going to deprive yourself of this, like what do you do with it? And Paul's going to get that in a minute, but he, he's like, this is what you would say, but, Paul says, but you can't say that our bodies were made for sexual immorality. Now, we, we, you can define this however you want. Just you, you wouldn't say that using your body even for sex that would be bad for you, because we all agree that there's, there's some ways in which you can behave sexually that are bad for you. So you wouldn't say that regardless of what your sexual desire, you should have a free-for-all and, and that that's what you were made for. You, you wouldn't say that your bodies were simply made to serve your sexual desires. None of us agree with that. Paul says, and I agree with you, but here's what I want you to know is they were made for the Lord. And this is something maybe you've never heard before. And the Lord cares about our bodies. Now, the next few verses that we're going to look at are not popular. In fact, most people call them skippers. Like, these are just skippers. It's like, oh, that's old. Like, we should just, just, just skip that one. Go, go on past that one. But here's the thing. They matter. Because God cares about you. And he cares what you do with your body because he cares about your future and he cares about your happiness and he cares about you fulfilling the desires inside of you in the right context. And here's what I want you to know. I do too. That's why I'm talking about this. I know for some of you, it's not gonna be popular. In fact, these verses, just remember as, as I'm reading them, Paul wrote them, not me. So don't throw things at me. This is the apostle Paul. But, but look, this is what he says. He says, as it relates to, to sexual immorality or sexual sin, run, run from sexual sin. That's what you should do. And if, if you're following along in your Bible or, or maybe you've, you've seen these verses before, you've seen the word flee, flee sexual immorality or flee sexual sin. But if you were to look up this up in a Greek lexicon, if you were to look it up in a, in a Greek dictionary and you were to discover the literal meaning, the literal meaning is this right here. I mean, if there were pictures in the Bible, that's what it would look like. Paul's going, run! Like you, you, you don't understand how powerful this is. It's, it's amazing, but it's powerful. And here's the thing. Most neuroscientists and clinical psychologists would look at this, especially this part. He says, run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. And the scientists would go, yep, that's true. Did you know that the research on oxytocin and vasopressin, there will be a test at the end of today, by the way. Um, the research about oxytocin and vasopressin, which are the two chemicals that are released in your body during sex, did you know that it is scientifically proven that an increased number of different partners leads to a decreased capacity for intimacy? That the more partners, the less personal. This is, this is, neuroscience has proved this to us. We, we know this chemically. Did you know that the, the effects of, of pornography in, in a Cambridge study, this is, it's hardly a, a conservative institution. In, in, a, in, a, in a, a study done at Cambridge on the effects of pornography, it has been proven to reduce brain function, to create addiction, to decrease pleasure, erode attachment, increase loneliness, destroy marriages, foster abuse, and promote aggression. Have we asked ourselves, is like, 
is this good? Should this be legal? I mean, I know that makes me sound old, but like, do you know in the last half a century, psychologists, uh, psychologists and there's lots of literature that's been written on this, they have widely uh, observed alarming and an alarming decline in the capacity for secure attachment among adults. This is the number one factor in experiencing intimacy is secure attachment and the breakdown of the nuclear family. And again, I know I sound really conservative, the breakdown of the nuclear family, multiple partners, cohabitation, and internet pornography are all major contributing factors. Now, you don't, don't, don't go political on me. I'm not to, forget the politics. And that's not, that's not why I actually thought the, the, the election was going to be over at this point. That's not, that's not my point of any of that. This is why. This is so dangerous. It's, this is why Paul says, he says, Run! Run! <laughs> this, this is why that's his, his instructions to us. Because as it turns out, turns out sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. It's not just about what you do with someone else. It's not about sinning against God. This is something that's damaging to you. I mean, sin, uh, we, we get nervous when we hit this term. This, it's an archery term. It means missing the mark. When you miss the mark, whatever the mark is, when you miss the mark sexually, it's damaging for you. It's damaging for your body's chemistry. It's something you're doing to yourself. So what do we do about that? The interesting thing is the Corinthians were asking the exact same thing. We're going to discover this. Now we're at the end of the chapter and we're going to go to a new chapter, but it's the same topic. And I don't know who puts the chapter, put the chapter marks in there, but chapter seven begins with the same topic. It's a continued conversation. He says now, after, after talking about that, regarding the questions you asked in your letter. So Paul's responding to a letter that they sent to him, asking a question. And his, his, his answer is simply yes. It's like, yes, what? Buckle your seatbelt. Yes, it is good to abstain from sexual relations. What? What? I mean, I imagine the Corinthians received Paul's letter and they're like, wait, we asked, who asked that? Who said, we should not have asked that question. We, we did not want this. Look, who got us into this? If somebody needs to fess up. Like, we did not want to hear this. Yes, it's good. You should, you should stop. Paul, that's not possible. The good news is it goes on. He says, but, which I've never been happier about a conjunction in the Bible in my entire life than at this moment. He says, but, but because, because there's so much sexual morality, basically saying, because you're gonna go forward anyway. Like, I, I know that, that this is part of life because there's so much sexuality among you. Look what he says. He says, each man should have his own wife and each woman should have excuse me, have her own husband. Paul's simple solution to sexual temptation is marriage. Now, the reason is, is because marriage, this lifelong commitment to each other is monogamous, which some of you, if you're a young millennial, you might be like, monogamous, what? Like, what's, what's monogamous? It sounds like, like a form of dinosaur, which it, it's becoming sort of that at this point in our culture. But this is not, monogamous is not like one at a time. I know that's what people think. It's not one at a time. It's one for all time. Paul's going, look, look, if you want to know the safest, proper context for this and the maximum fulfillment you're going to experience in it, it's in an exclusive monogamous relationship, not just one at a time, but one for all time. 
And we know this intuitively, you know this. Intimacy requires exclusivity. If, if you're, you're going on a date with your boyfriend and he shows up with all of his buddies on date night, like that's not intimate. It's not gonna be intimate. If everybody's invited over to your house, it's not an intimate gathering. It, it's why only two people are invited to go on the honeymoon, right? Because like it's, it's intended to be intimate. When it comes to sexuality, accessibility minus exclusivity erodes intimacy. It must be accessible. If you're gonna experience something intimate, somebody has to have access. We've talked about this before, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. But if everybody has access, there's no intimacy. Intimacy without exclusivity, it erodes. It precludes intimacy. And this isn't theory. As I already told you, neuroscience has proven this. Sex was never intended simply for your casual pleasure. It's a threat to intimacy. Access that's unrestricted, unhinged. This is Paul's point. When when sexual desire is unbound and uninhibited and unregulated, it leads to chaos and it's not good for us. It's not good for you. It's not good for our society. And and we're seeing this play out right in front of us. We live in a culture where sexual expression in almost any form is permissible and accessible and more permissible and more accessible than ever before. And, And this idea of exclusivity, like this is an archaic idea. It's not a value. So the age-old question, this is the question when I was growing up, I remember asking my youth pastor, I was like, okay, so, so where's the line? If this is what the Bible says, because it's like, I want to get right up next to the line without messing myself up, but I want to get as close as I possibly can and like fulfill as many of those desires as I can. Where's the line? That's my question for you. I mean, who am I to stand up here and tell you? You're an adult. You should decide for yourself. The Bible's full of suggestions. But I don't want to debate this. I'm not, we, could, we could stand, we could debate this. I'm not interested in that. However, I care about you. And I believe having a line is a good idea. So where's the line when it comes to exclusivity? What should be exclusive to your marriage or to your future marriage? I was having this conversation recently with my son and this was an important one for me to get permission. So I, I did get permission for this story, but I was talking to him. He, he uh, not long ago uh, got his first girlfriend and you know, they've been coming, become hanging out a lot and at our house, at their house and they become more comfortable with each other. And, and you know, one day they went, they went downstairs to the basement. We have a basement in our house and there's a, there's a theater room down there. And so they went down to the theater room. And so I just thought, well, that's probably not really great. So I'm going to go down there and just mill around and find something to do. I got projects, you know, it's like mom needed me to go down here and do something. So I'm down here milling around and, and, you know, and after, so, so we, you know, I, later, you know, I was like, Hey, you know, just, you got to think about that. And, and then another time, you know, she came over and they went straight down to the basement I follow him down the basement and looking for things to do. You know, it's like, it's just what I do. So that, that day we, we went and dropped her off at home. We're driving back. And I said, hey, can I ask you a question? He said, sure. I said, hey, have you, have you asked your girlfriend's dad for permission to hang out with her in the basement by yourselves in our theater? How, how do you think that would go if you did, by the way? He's like, that's a good point. 
I said, um, ah, this may be awkward, but we haven't talked about this before, but did, did you know that she's likely someone else's? I mean, man, something may happen. You know, high school sweet, sweethearts end up spending their lives together, but like she's likely someone else's future wife. Have you thought about that? Of course not. I'm 15, dad. <laughs> you should think about that. And here's why you should think about that. It's because that means somebody else is dating your future wife. And you should think about how you want that guy to treat your future wife and what you would want her to share with him. See, you don't need a Bible verse for this, do you? See, here, here's the question we need to ask ourselves is, how, how much access is wise with someone you're not married to? Like, this is a wisdom issue. Like non-exclusive access sexually, whether given or gained. Here's what you need to know. Whether you give someone access, you invite that access to you, or you gain it to somebody else, physically or digitally. Whether this is in person or online. Whether, when you gain or give access to somebody else, your capacity, especially multiple people, when it's not exclusive, your capacity to experience deep, intimate human connection decreases. And that's not just a biblical perspective. Science and psychology have proven it in their literature. So if you're married, here, here's my question. What should be exclusively reserved for you and your spouse? Here, here's an idea. You should ask your spouse. You should ask them, hey, what should I only share with you? What experiences should I only share with you? Is it okay for me to go on business trips with somebody with the opposite sex, just the two of us? Is it okay for us to ride in the car together? What kind of conversations are, need to be exclusive just to us? What type of content should I view on a screen or on the big screen or on, my, on the Netflix screen? Like what kind of type of content should I be viewing on there versus just being exclusive in terms of my eyes to you? What physical interactions should be exclusive? See, this is an important conversation. This is a not only a helpful, but a healthful conversation for you. This not only provides health in your relationship, but it provides health in your body. This is what Paul's saying. You can screw up the chemistry in your body. Jen and I, in our marriage, we've decided we're never gonna be alone. It's awkward sometimes, but we're never gonna be alone with someone of the opposite sex who isn't family. We just, I mean, we don't ride in the car with somebody. Somebody doesn't stop by the house. It's like, and it's, and it's sort of strange, but we just, we just don't do it. And, and we have several things like that. It's like, these are the only things we don't have uh, uh, in text threads. We don't have conversations with somebody the opposite sex that, that's, that without copying um, each other on the, on the conversation or in direct messages. I mean, you've seen this. This is how people get in trouble. The primary way people... Uh, uh, become romantically involved with somebody outside their marriage is through Facebook. It's data. Go look it up. It's reality. It's our culture. So in your marriage, what, what, what's, where's the line for you? What, what should be exclusive? Now, if you're single or you're dating or you're cohabitating, I'm, my, my question's the same for you. What should be exclusively reserved for your future spouse? What do you hope your future spouse reserves just for you. Some of you go, yeah, but, but what if I'm planning to marry the person I'm dating? What, what, that's a great question. What if you're planning to marry the person you're dating? Get married, just do it. That's what Paul would say. 
You hurry, like run to the altar. That's what's best for you. Like get there fast. And, and some people go, no, you don't rush into that type of thing. That's great. You don't rush into sexuality either. But we all do. Our society does. You know, it, it, because of our culture, not because somebody sat down, decided, or thought this through. 90%, we have, we have an environment called two to one that helps people prepare for marriage. And this is no judgment, by the way. 90 plus percent of couples in, in two to one, we, we have this, this survey that they take. They believe that cohabitating is, is a good test for marriage. Like, hey, this is how you test. Like, we're gonna, we're gonna go play house and we're gonna figure out, is this a good, like, is this a good fit? Is this what we should do? Um, there's a recent uh, article published in Psychology Today. You can go look this up as well. Psychology Today, that again, hardly a, a conservative publication that shows that cohabitation results in the greatest number of failed relationships, a lower, lower odds for people that actually get married and a 30% higher divorce rate in those that do get married. Now, I was recently sharing this, I guess it was a couple of years ago, a year and a half ago, I was sharing this with a couple I was doing premarital counseling for. And I shared these statistics and the guy was so mad. He was so mad at me. I was like, I'm like, look, I'm not your dad. I'm just telling you the facts. Like, this is, this is reality. This is something, because they were living together. I was like, you should just think about this. And like, if you, those of you who are living together, like, it's not like I, we don't know. Like, this is common in our culture. I'm just saying, you should think about it. You should look at the data. You should, don't hide your eyes from the truth. Anyway, this guy was really mad at me. And, and he said, well, look, we're already sleeping together. What's the difference? Like, what's stopping going to prove? That was his exact question. What's stopping going to prove? And just popped into my head. I said, you know, you know what I think it'll prove? It'll prove to your wife how you're gonna relate to women who aren't your wife once you get married. I mean, if you're willing to have sex with somebody who's not your wife now, I mean, why aren't you willing to have sex with somebody who isn't your wife later? Nobody asked me to do premarital counseling anymore, so. <laughs> Which I understand. But here's what I want you to know, like this is uncomfortable and like it's not popular. And look, here's what you need to know. Like, I'm just being honest. I don't know how to be any other way than just to be totally honest with you. I want you to like me, <laughs> I do. But I also, maybe more than that, I want you as your pastor, I want you to trust me that I'm gonna tell you the truth. This is the truth. It's no judgment. This is not judgment. If this has brought on feelings of guilt or shame, I want you to be free from that. In fact, I wanna free you from that right now. The Bible says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you claim Jesus is your Lord, no sexual sin or act, like there's no judgment. I mean, this isn't about guilt. You don't need to free yourself of that. Jesus says you're free of that guilt. You're free of that condemnation. But I know some of you, are, you're gonna be upset with me. And that's okay. I mean this genuinely. You should email me. I would love to hear from you. Seriously. I will answer your emails. But here's the thing. I know for some of you, this may feel offensive or hurtful or unkind. And that's not my intent. I know for some of you are thinking, I mean, if I try to do that and make exclusive or we, we decide not to live, I mean, this is gonna be a mess. Like, this is gonna be so hard. Like, you're ruining my life, you're thinking. I mean, like, I just want you to know that's not my intent. I know it doesn't feel good, but hear this. Please, please hear this and hear my heart. Like, this is in the most compassionate way I can say this. Doesn't feel good, doesn't equal not true. Just because something doesn't feel good doesn't mean it's not true. 
If you said to me, Joel, if you lose 20 pounds and have hair, you would be better looking. It would be offensive, hurtful, and unkind, but you'd be right. (laughs) Don't miss this. This is true. This is reality. And here's what I want for you. In a society where we've wanted and demanded liberation, the truth is actually what sets us free. The scriptures, we've talked about this before. The scriptures were given to us as mental maps to reality. Jesus came as a rabbi. He wanted to lead you in a better way. He wanted to lead you in the right way. He wanted to lead you towards the fulfillment of all that you were designed to experience. These words of Paul, these instructions, these warnings, this idea of exclusivity. Paul says, It's because you were made for more. You were made for the Lord and he cares about you and he cares about your body. It's not too late for anyone. He can heal and he can restore and he can rewire. But you can actually destroy the chemistry in your body by mishandling these desires. Here's here's what you need. I just want to say this one more time. It's not about where you've been or what you've done. That doesn't define you. And it doesn't determine your future. Anything is possible with Jesus. But wherever you find yourself today, here's, here's my challenge. From this point forward, what does it look like to repent? This word in the scripture just means to turn and go in a new direction. We've been going in the direction with the flow of culture, even inside the church. We've been going through this, to this, this flow of culture that says this is incredibly permissible and sexuality is incredibly accessible to us and it's okay for me to just do what's natural without any sort of guidelines or codes or structure. What would it look like for you to go, no, 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 this isn't good. I'm gonna, I'm gonna trust the Lord that this isn't good for me and I'm, I'm gonna turn. I'm gonna repent. I'm gonna go in a new direction. What would it look like for you, you personally? What would it look like for you to elevate the value of exclusivity in your life for the sake of experiencing true intimacy either in your current relationship or in your future relationship? We're gonna talk about next week the psychology behind marriage and monogamous relationships and why, why it works. And we're gonna talk about a second component of intimacy uh, that, that really connects and dovetails with exclusivity. And I'm gonna define what true intimacy is. My hope in this series, and I know, I know it seems, some of you are thinking, that's so unrealistic, that's so archaic, that's so old. Here's my hope. Hope is to call us back to something that's greater. Because what we're experiencing since the beginning of this, this, <clears throat> this thought to this technological innovation, <clears throat> we have to break this cycle right here. And if we don't do it, who, who will? Who, who's, gonna, who's gonna stand up for, not just for our relationships and future intimacy, but that of our kids and the next generation. If somebody doesn't talk about this, if somebody doesn't raise and talk about the truth of what we're experiencing, not just what the Bible says, 
what's actually happening in our culture that's not good, who will do it? So my challenge is, why not you? Why not us? Why not here? Why not now? In this city, influential city, large influential church, there's no telling what God could do to revolutionize our sexuality once again. Let me pray for you. God, I know there's all sorts of opportunities for people to misunderstand or misconstrue, misinterpret what I'm saying today. I just pray you guard all of that by the power of your spirit, which I believe is alive and well in our midst. I pray that you'd guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus, as the scripture says. Pray for somebody who's here today and they're not sure what to do. This does create a bit of a mess and, and in some ways they, they do feel like it's hurtful. It's difficult. They do feel some level of guilt or shame. I pray that you would rush into that, that you'd surround them with people that would speak truth about your love for them, regardless of what they're in the midst of and your love for them that would call them and lift them out of that. And I help, help, help them to know today that part of why you led them to show up in this place today, to hear these words and to look at these truths is because you love them and you care about them and you care about their body and you wanna lift them out of that to experience life as you ultimately designed for them to experience. And I pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Once again, thanks for listening. If you'd like to hear more messages like this, we've made it super easy. First, you can hit the subscribe button to get these messages on your device every week. Second, you can download our app from iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your apps. Or third, you can check out our YouTube channel. Just search for Buckhead Church and make sure to subscribe. Have a great day.